Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Dory with you. Let me tell you a little bit about Michael Jower, a Washington, D.C.-based writer, speaker, researcher. His expertise is the personality development area, body, mind, emotion, spirituality. He's the author with Mark Mikosi, M.D., Ph.D. of a couple books, The Spiritual Anatomy of Emotion and Your Emotional Type. The latest book by uh, Mr. Michael Jower is... Sensitive Soul, The Unseen Role of Emotion in Extraordinary States. And, Michael, we have all gone through some emotional states over the past year, haven't we? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> we may just be getting started. I'm not sure. I think so. Well, welcome to the program, and thanks for staying up so late for us. It's a pleasure to be with you, George. How did you get involved in this area? Well, in a completely unlikely way, uh, looking back about 25 years, I would have never guessed that I've gotten into researching and writing about the subject I have, it really got uh, started when I was uh, in the mid-1990s uh, working in the commercial real estate industry and researching something called sick building syndrome, which is uh, uh, primarily office buildings, uh, sometimes residential buildings where people uh, are in the buildings, they don't feel well, they get kind of cold and flu-type symptoms, okay. and when they're outside of the buildings, they feel much better. So the buildings seem to be the culprit. The question is why? And working with an association of um, building owners and managers, I was tasked with working with folks uh, with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency to develop guidance to prevent sick buildings and keep mm. people well, uh, and then sort of develop protocols for what you do if, you know, if you're a building manager or engineer and there is something like this, a situation like this. And uh, I, st- I started speaking with a variety of people, obviously the building managers and engineers to begin with, but, but ultimately the building occupants and folks who, who were sidelined because of these symptoms. And uh, they told me that in many cases they had um, been sensitive to various things in their environment years before, which raised the question just what might be going on here. Is the building ultimately the, the problem, or could it be an interaction between the building and the person? And I became aware as people started to confide in me in a couple of um, more esoteric conditions. One is called multiple chemical sensitivity, where people are um, highly reactive to things like perfumes and colognes and paints and pesticides. Right, right. Uh, so that's, you know, that, that was kind of interesting. And then uh, some people told me about their electrical sensitivity, uh, feeling like they uh, were influenced by and influenced um, electrical appliances, lights and computers especially, and then the kicker was that some of these folks, as I had sort of more ongoing conversations and more ultimately confidential, uh, the individuals anyway, was, was uh, the fact that they had uh, experienced things like apparitions and could see energies around people, uh, and that they felt this was a pronounced form of sensitivity, uh, emotional, primarily, that they'd had for many years. So that sort of <laughs> piqued a lot of questions, and the study and writing I've done ever since really sprang from that. These buildings that helped create the sick building syndrome, were, were like asbestos and chemicals in the building, things like that? Yeah, asbestos, not so much. It's, it's really sort of um, mold in buildings is a, is a big trigger, is a big factor. Uh, you know, people have mold in their homes uh, as well. It's, it's sort of endemic or can be. And one thing, George, that sort of tipped me off that, that um, this is a uh, sort of interesting path to research is that at that same time, um, my wife and I had moved into a new house, which is where I'm speaking to you from, and uh, we were working, we had a sort of shared office, and 
it turned out there was mold in that room. Now, my wife has been asthmatic since she was born, unfortunately, and mm-hmm. she would react immediately to this. Right, right. I could be in that room simultaneously and just sort of be aware that there's kind of a musty odor, not be really uh, put off by it. And so I had a very clear example of different people reacting differently in a room that could be considered sick, and we obviously had that remedied very quickly. Um, but this was happening all at the same time, so it sort of gelled. And then you somehow got into the emotional end of all this, too, which is amazing. Yeah, I, I became convinced, and am convinced, and have written about this extensively, that sensitivity, when you consider that term, there's a physical side to it where people are you know, allergic in many cases. I think migraine is a good example of, of physical sensitivities, but simultaneously emotional sensitivities, and allergy and migraine are, are probably good examples of that. Uh, when people are riled up, when they are stressed, uh, they're certainly more likely to get colds or infections. Their uh, their allergies kick in. My, my wife's asthma can be uh, uh, worsened by emotional stress, and migraine uh, is set off by all kinds of things. Uh, most people think of it, you know, in terms of smells and and uh, glare and and noise and things like that, which is certainly true. But the primary trigger for for most people is emotion. Uh, so it's very difficult to separate out um, emotion from uh, from you know, physical prompts. They sort of are all wrapped up in one, and, and that's, uh, again, what I've tried to uh, explore quite a bit. How did you get to know the uh, poltergeist investigator, William Roll? How did that happen? Uh, that also sprang, interestingly enough, from my work on indoor air quality. I was, again, this is back in the probably mid to late 1990s, getting interested in these subjects. And uh, I've always had an interest in parapsychology as well. Uh, there are some experiences I've had in my family or my family has had, and, and I, I, I think some of this may actually be genetic as well. Um, anyway, that was kind of in the back of my mind, especially when I was talking to people um, who'd been affected by so-called sick buildings or sick building syndrome, and they told me they had these sort of pre-existing sensitivities and particular proclivities towards uh, paranormal perception. And I was uh, speaking at a small conference on indoor air quality in the Atlanta area, and I remembered that Bill Roll, who was a renowned uh, and still you know, very noteworthy um, poltergeist investigator, uh, was in the Atlanta region. So I, I sent him a letter, called him up, and um, he very graciously agreed to meet with me. And so we were kicking these things around, and uh, one thing that struck me, George, at the time was that um, uh, Bill Roll's assistant had all the cluster of symptoms <laughs> and complaints uh, that uh, I had been talking with these folks in the sick building um, context about the very same one. Jeez. Migraine, she was allergic, she saw apparitions, uh, she felt vibrations in rooms and so forth, and, and Bill told me something that I've uh, never f- uh, forgotten. He said, if you go back to the um, in 19th century, in the turn of the 20th century, when uh, parapsychology was in vogue and uh, uh, mediums were all the rage. He said they, they weren't really called mediums, they were called sensitives, and they were known as sensitives. And so that really uh, put me 100% on sort of this concept of sensitivity, and Bill subsequently suggested, why don't, why don't you do a survey to try to systematize the data that you're getting, the, the stories that you're getting from people, change them from anecdotes into into actual data, ask particular questions, and and see what you come up with. And so that led to the publication of a survey 
um, in the Journal of, for the Society of Psychical Research, the group out of the UK that has a, various, a very uh, illustrious um, pedigree going back to, uh, uh, to the late 1800s, William James, and I think the um, Arthur Conan Doyle was, uh, right. Sherlock Holmes was a member, and so forth. So I was thrilled to get published by them. That was my first paper, and uh, went through that whole process. And I, I believe the, the findings stand up to this day, and that's a lot of what I've written about. When you wrote the book Sensitive Soul, the new book that's just come out, tell me about the title. That's I, I find it to be very clever, but uh, tell me its meaning. Uh, right, so uh, sensitive refers to the fact that each of us is a sensate being. You know, we, we have to be sensitive to make sense out of our environment, mm-hmm. our, our senses, and, and emotions provide a, a, a key to that. Uh, emotions tell us how, how we're feeling, you know, how, how we are in any given environment. Uh, is this relationship right or wrong for me? Um, so sensitivity is, again, both physical and emotional and kind of orients us as, as individuals. Um, soul refers to our, our spiritual capacity, uh, which I also argue is very much tied to emotion, to feeling. Uh, the feelings we have for one another, for, for our pets, for, for nature, um, you know, for things that are going on in the world. You mentioned you know, recent events. Everybody gets riled up over those. Um, you know, this sort, all of this underlies, in my opinion, our, our spirituality, uh, fellow feeling, the, uh, the feeling that we have for, for uh, other people in, in this life. And I think the deeper our feeling, the deeper our spirituality. So you, you put those two together, and that's then, uh, my concept of sensitive soul. I'm fascinated by the concept of deja vu, that feeling that you know something's going to happen or you've been there before. How does that equate into sensitive soul? I have the glimmer of a feeling that you've asked me this question before. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> and you've been Hasn't on happened. before. No, your first time. <laughs> <laughs> Hasn't happened. But, uh, yeah, deja vu is, is remarkable because uh, so many of us have, you know, experienced deja vu, and it's quite, quite striking. It's a weird feeling. It's, it's a very it weird sensation. It's like you're between this and that, and, and it's this faint, you know, sense that... that um, I've been here before, this has happened before, uh, doing some sort of time travel, and there are all kinds of uh, proposed explanations for it. Interestingly enough, there is no single uh, accepted, you know, sort of uh, mainstream explanation of, of, of deja vu, but there's um, uh, an explanation that I particularly uh, have been drawn to, and that I, I write about in the new book, and that is that... Um, it very well may relate to uh, being in a situation where you're, invi- you're reminded of something that, that did happen before uh, in your life, uh, and, and there's some cue in the environment that, that uh, tips you off to that. And so you start to remember, and it's sort of unconscious. Uh, and at the same time, there's, there was something in that memory that's unpleasant or that your unconscious doesn't want to fully realize and bring into the present. And so it shuts it off. And I've experienced this myself um, in one situation where, you know, reflecting on it, I thought, oh, that's probably what was going on. Um, and, and I think that at least it was a satisfying explanation for me. Mm-hmm. I, I believe it could explain many other, maybe not all, instances of deja vu, but I, I think that the subconscious is at work, and the subconscious typically uh, uh, is responsible for a lot more of our experience and our perception than we give it credit for. 
and the experience, you can feel it coming on, can't you? Yes, it's eerie in that way. It absolutely yeah. is. It sort of dawns on you. The impression dawns on you, and then you, you, you don't quite have the, the full uh, appreciation for it. You're not really sure what you're on the cusp of, and then it goes away. Is there anything supernatural to it? I, I, I've got a uh, friend who's a doctor, and he thinks it's like uh, some kind of frontal lobe epilepsy. So he goes the medical way. I'd rather go the more supernatural way. <laughs> well, I, like I say, there, there are a lot of uh, explanations for it. Um, if folks go on to, uh, you know, go online, um, there are, and, and YouTube, for example, there, there are many very, very well-presented explanations. Uh, and neurologically, there's a lot going on. There's a lot to unpack. Uh, I happen to like this particular explanation because it seemed to explain uh, a very striking instance of deja vu that I had. Uh, and again, I'm uh, sort of predisposed to uh, to look into the unconscious. And when you talk about the supernatural, I think the unconscious has a lot to do with what, what we talk about as, as supernatural. And it's, a lot of it is out of our awareness, which is why it seems so eerie. You talk about PTSD, uh, and you say there are a couple types of PTSD. Explain that. Yes, this is one of the more uh, uh, surprising, perhaps, uh, uh, outcomes of my research, I, I just thought there's one kind of PTSD, which is the typical, when people think of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, they think of you know, sort of the flashbulb memory. You know, there's, there's a veteran of, of um, uh, Vietnam or Iraq and... and right, Afghanistan, all that. Afghanistan, yeah. um, and of course, of course, people that, that have, have gone through a, a natural disaster or some sort of trauma where someone has threatened them is life-threatening emergency and again something in the environment almost like like deja vu there's something in the environment that triggers uh, this recollection and you know it could be a car backfiring and, and the, the the person feels like they're back on the battlefield right exactly. and, you know all of the smells all the sights all the sound all the fears come rushing back and they're overwhelmed and um, they can't tell left from right and that's the the flashbulb form of PTSD. What I discovered uh, is that in the last five to seven years, there's been um, research into what's called a dissociative form of PTSD, which affects between, I think the numbers are 15 to 30 percent of people that have it. And a dissociation is, is the term for uh, when you are sort of at a distance from your feelings, and it's sort of automatic and it kicks in. It's what I think is happening in deja vu, um, and uh, what happens for this uh, percentage of people with PTSD is, again, there's something that prompts the recollection, but this mechanism kicks in, dissociation, and they, they can't really grasp it. They just feel like something is amiss, and sort of the opposite of the flashbulb type of PTSD, they can't really visualize or crystallize what it is that's bothering them, and it sort of feels like a funk or walking through, you know, fog, and it goes on, and they can't really get out of it, and, and this is the dissociative form of PTSD, and it relates, in my estimation, I think there's good evidence for this, it relates to two personality types, George, um, or at least two ends of a personality spectrum, and two very pronounced and very different reactions uh, to um, you know, to a situation, uh, what they had in mm -hmm. common was you know something that provoked great fear and anxiety once upon a time, but two very different reactions and two different forms of PTSD. 
you know, and different people, as you say, react to it in different ways. But some people who have been on the battlefield never get PTSD. No, that's right. And and uh, most, actually, most people do not, um, in, and in natural disasters as well. But there are a heck of a lot of people that do, and that raises the larger question. You're, you're very uh, 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 shrewd to point this out, is, is that... Most people don't, and so that's that's the initial question. Why do some people get PTSD and others not? And then, of course, why do some people uh, suffer from this sort of uh, variation of it? And, it, and it, again, it relates, I, I think, to a broad spectrum of personality and, in some sense, how people are wired, especially emotionally, what registers with them. And, and I come back to the term sensitivity. Uh, I think some people uh, are, are prone or primed uh, in effect, to be traumatized, and they may not know it, but it's just kind of how they are. Um, and other people uh, can, they're much more resilient, and they can walk away from something that would affect somebody else quite severely. One of our favorite guests, Dean Radin, wrote a nice little uh, snippet for you about your book on the back cover. He says, a fascinating tour, the hitting influences that make us who we are and that hold the clues to some truly extraordinary abilities. And uh, he knows what he's talking about, Michael. He does. Dean is a great guy, and he's been studying far more than I have over a longer period of time. And I've, Dean's one of the people that I've leaned on. I've been very fortunate in writing these books to work with some terrific people. Uh, the co-author of my first two books, Mark McCosey, uh, knows a heck of a lot about uh, uh, integrative health care and, and really the, the way uh, we can consider people holistically, and that outlook has really helped me to to sort of come along and put the pieces together. It's an amazing work. Uh, we're going to talk more about your work. You even get into animals, don't you? Quite a bit. Much more, again, than I ever thought I would. Uh, they're all around us, and, and they're mammals like we are, so there's a lot that we can observe about uh, our own functioning in, in, our, in our pets and our animal friends. When we take calls next hour with folks, uh, if anybody has had some emotional episodes, uh, how do you feel comfortable with them sharing that with you? Yes, absolutely. Uh, nothing should be out of bounds, absolutely, positively. And since you started putting this together, what have you concluded about people that, uh, in terms of how their emotions differ from different people, how people react to stress, how people don't? Is there a common barometer here or denominator? Yeah, this is going to sound odd, but our commonality is our diversity. We are all human beings, but there are no two people who truly see the world and experience the world identically. Maybe if they're identical twins. Maybe. I'm not even so sure on that. That's true. Um, but, yeah, everybody's different. We see this in our political environment in the last many months and weeks. Um, you know, people get affected by different things and experience things very differently. But to me, emotion is, is the bottom line. Emotion is what drives us. Uh, it's, it's the source of our strength in the world, our animation, our energy to get up and do things. It's what we, you know, feel moved about. That's, that's emotion. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.